May the 24th, 2012. Let's prepare ourselves in our usual fashion. Rebound if necessary. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful that you are always faithful and it doesn't depend upon us. You're always loving. You're always caring. You're always just and righteous. And you don't change. But everything else around us changes. <clears throat> and the only way that we're going to keep from being disoriented, confused, and frustrated is to have in our soul, in our thinking, something that doesn't change either, and that's your Word. And there's so many ways that it can be distorted and twisted and can just stretched out of shape. So we pray that you will help us to focus tonight on what we study, that it will be yet another part of the puzzle that we can see you clearly see our part in your plan clearly, that you will help us to stand firm for the faith, use spiritual discernment, and grow in grace. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we're going to continue with where we kind of left off last time. It's a new part of growing, uh, getting the gospel uh, correct, getting gospel right, and it's the issue of craving the experiential. A lot of people will say that they crave the spiritual, but they don't know anything about the spiritual. What they really crave is a spiritual, emotional experience. That's what a lot of people mean when they want to get into the spiritual realm. This is really a pretty big issue, and we're not going to, to look at it in its totality, but we're going to just show mainly how it applies to the gospel, and it certainly does. I'm just going to fly through, just hit a spot here or there until I get down to a point to where we ended last time. The essence of this experiential is that people no longer subscribe to sola scriptura, which is Latin, which means scriptures only. They want to enter into a lot of other things. Tradition is part of it. Experience is also part of it. And they want to have all these things be on an equal plane to scripture, which there is no equal plane. We went over that last time, that with regards to authority, there's no such thing as equal authority. You always have someone at the top. And one thing that we see that's nearly always linked to the experiential when people are craving experiences are feelings, emotions. Those two are connected at the hip, it seems. And so that's what people want. When you go at the, to the big mega churches that are drawing scads of people, it's unusual to find a big church that is doctrinally oriented. 
because people really aren't that interested in Scripture. They're interested in getting an emotional fix with regards to what they think spirituality is. And they go there and they get lifted up in that way. They go to church for an experience. And if you come to Bible, a country Bible church or nearly any other Bible church and you're coming in order to get an emotional, spiritual experience, you might be left a little wanting because you, you might even feel a little dry. And that's not the right reason to go to church anyway because that's not what growing in grace is all about. That's not what your relationship with God is all about. I hope that you come to church and you shouldn't come in drudgery. If you come to church in drudgery, something's wrong with your spiritual life. From what I gather from most people, and certainly this group on a weeknight, look forward to coming to church. You anticipate it with desire. And it's not because you're looking for a great service where you're just going to be blown away by the entertainment, which is essentially what most of it is. But you are eager to learn more. You're eager to have a closer relationship with our great God by learning more about who He is, what does He expect of us, what has He given us, how are we to, how are we to figure this thing out? And so when you have that in mind, there may be times that your emotions do kick in, but it certainly isn't required, it certainly isn't necessary. I get a thrill sometimes when I get a new revelation. I'm not, you know, I don't have my antenna out and God is broadcasting me. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about when I learned something I didn't know before. And sometimes I think all of us have learned something that we thought we never learned it before, but we learned it before and forgot it. But for us, it's new. <laughs> so we're still good to go in that. Well, I'm not even going to go into all the things we covered last time about these nutcakes these uh, emerging church leaders who, it's, they're postmodern, meaning there is no absolutes. It's all about experience. Uh, here you have Leonard Sweet who wrote the uh, book, The Gospel According to Starbucks. The, the title will tell you uh, a lot. Just to show. <laughs> then you have Brian McLaren. This whole part right here is the uh, where does it start here? Right, right here. See here? That's all the title of the book that he wrote. So here it is. A Generous Orthodoxy. Why I Am Missional Evangelical Post-Protestant Liberal Conservative Mystical Poetic Biblical Charismatic Contemplative Fundamentalist Calvinist Anabaptist and Anglican Methodist, Catholic, Green, International, Depressed, Yet Hopeful, Emergent Church, uh, Emergent, Unfinished Christian. That's the name of the book. And I guess it's flying off the shelves. A couple of the chapter headings. The seven Jesuses I have known. 
And would Jesus be a Christian? And people buy this stuff. So we've gone over all that. And here's some more quotes. I want to get down here. Okay, here's where we're going to start tonight. And this is where I start linking this craving for the experiential with the gospel. Now, understanding all the things that... I gave you just a little sliver of what we went over last time. It's really ludicrous. It's laughable. It would be laughable if it wasn't so tragic. You may be thinking that all of this experiential stuff is only found around the fringes of Protestant evangelical churches and is absent in major denominational churches. Well, you need to think again because... Those who crave an emotional experience, a spiritual experience, doing something spiritual or experiencing God through a ritual can easily find churches on nearly every corner that will satisfy their cravings. Anywhere you want to go, any town is going to have churches that are in the business of getting you cranked up spiritually. I'm not talking about teaching. I'm talking about emotional stimulation. And I'm not just talking about the charismatics either. Since most pastors are not teaching biblical spirituality, the majority of Christians go to church to get spiritually high by having emotional experience that they mistakenly identify as spirituality. And so you're asking about what you might think that has to do with the gospel. It starts, uh, I start linking it with the gospel, this experience. When the gospel is presented by requiring one to do something in addition to placing their faith alone in Christ alone. That's when the experiential starts to kick in. Rather than giving an accurate, clear presentation of the gospel, a multitude of pastors give a fuzzy, nebulous gospel that requires a person's participation Something that requires a person's participation, something con- uh, concrete or overt. By the way, do you all know what nebulous means? Everybody knows nebulous. It means unclear. It's where we get the word, uh, the nebulae in the clouds. It's cloudy. It's kind of fuzzy, kind of unclear. So they don't give a clear, clear presentation of the gospel because they're not giving it correctly. And this uh, often occurs when an altar call is given. Phrases such as, invite Christ into your heart, come to Jesus, give your life to Christ, turn from your life of sin and follow Jesus, come now and make your profession of faith, or raise your hand if the Lord is dealing with you. I've heard all these and more. This is just a sampling of the fuzzy gospel that is given for the purpose of connecting an experience with the gospel, an experience of something other than simply believing in Jesus Christ. So notice all these phrases have something in common. You must act, do something other than simply believe in Christ. All of this appeals to the flesh because it gives one the opportunity to participate in their salvation. It is something real, concrete, tangible, an experience that one can remember. That's very important to a lot of people. You see, if you're just sitting in, in, in a pew, at a chair, or someone gives you the gospel, 
and it makes sense to you, and you accept the gospel, you believe it, you might not even remember when that took place. I mean, there's nothing significant, there's no experience, there's nothing to link it to. To say, yes, I was saved uh, March the 4th, 1972. In a lot of people's minds, what's going in their mind isn't when they read the Bible and, and, and they understood the gospel and accepted it. A lot of times it goes back to that experience they had. A lot of times it has to do with walking an aisle. They want something tangible. But what does come to Jesus mean, by the way? How is it done? How does one give their life to Christ? What does it involve? How can one know if he or she has come to Jesus or given their life to Christ? How do you know if you've done it? What does inviting Christ into one's heart mean? How is it done? And what does it accomplish? You know, when you talk to a lot of professing believers, and maybe they are, I don't know whether they are or not, but when you ask a person, or when they're, sometimes they'll say they're giving you their testimony, very few will say, I believed in Jesus Christ and so and so. Very few testimonies have that in it. Most of the time, it's this, well, I invited Christ in my heart, I came to Jesus, I uh, dedicated my life to Jesus, uh, all these type of things. And I think these are pretty good questions to ask a person. You're not trying to be controversial or, or contentious. I would just like to know, oh, in 1972, you came to Jesus. Yeah. Well, how do you know you came to Jesus? What does that mean? Is, is there anything wrong with asking someone that? Hmm? I mean, I would like to know. What does it mean that you gave your heart to Jesus? How do you do that? Where is it found in the Bible? You see, none of these terms are found in the Bible. They're all man-made. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. That's in the Bible. Believing is always the issue. But when you throw all this peripheral nonsense in there, how can anyone know what really is going on? You see, we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that we did something that resulted in eternal life. We believed in Jesus Christ. Now, there's a lot of people, uh, maybe not a lot of people, maybe there's nobody like me, but anyway, I was going to say there's a lot of people like me, but it, with, in, in this regard. I don't know when I believed in Jesus Christ the first time. I have no idea. I couldn't, I might not even be able to hit it within a decade. I don't know. But what's important is I know now. I don't know exactly when it happened. I mean, it happened a long time ago because for a long time I've had complete eternal 
security. I've had complete assurance that when I take my last breath, I'm heaven bound. And so it really doesn't bother me that I can't go back and tell you the exact date and all the circumstances and all that. To me, it doesn't really matter. The matter is I did it somewhere. That's my testimony. What a testimony for a pastor. I've been to churches. I've been to people. Uh, Pastor, would you give us your testimony? And I said, you wouldn't like it. (laughs) I believed in Jesus Christ and I'm saved and I don't even know when. That's my testimony. What does come to Jesus mean? I, I don't know. I, I'm, not just, I'm not just throwing these things out. Can any of you tell me? Can anybody in, the, in here or any believer that you've ever known would be able to go to the Scriptures and say, look, let me show you biblically what it means to come to Jesus. And we're talking about eternal salvation. Can you tell me? How does one know if he did? Listen, folks, you want to get down to the nitty-gritty? Feelings. That's what it's about. Most people that said they came to Jesus and they know all these things, that is big emotional experience. And maybe they were saved. I don't know. But that's not the way to be saved. Why remember something that's not even connected to the gospel? And that goes with all these things, with uh, inviting, your, uh, inviting Christ into your heart. I'll give anybody $150 million if you can go into the Bible. Any translation you want. I don't know. I might be on shaky ground with a the message there. But anyway, <laughs> show me that in Scripture that that's the way to be saved is to invite Christ into your heart. Maybe I ought to put that on the internet. Internet. No, I guess not. I've got enough (laughs) hounds at my heels already. Okay. The person who has been given a fuzzy gospel and walks an aisle has a lot of unanswered questions, but they know one thing for sure, that they walked an aisle and maybe had an emotional experience. That's the one thing they know definitely. They did it on this date. They did it at this church. They might even know the time it was. So many people wind up trusting that experience for their salvation because they were never told that faith alone in Christ alone saves. They've been given this ethereal, fuzzy, abstruse junk, and they call it an invitation for the gospel, and really nobody could biblically tell you what it is, but they walked the aisle. And the only thing that they know for sure, if you ask them, well, what does it mean to invite Christ into your heart? What does it mean to uh, come to Christ? What does it mean to um, give your profession of faith? I doubt that anybody could just just give you just start spouting it right out. But they can spout one thing out for sure. I know that I walked an aisle on that date. That's what stands out in their mind. And let me say at this point. I'm not trying to 
belittle, besmirch, undermine, or do anything with the way other churches do church. We don't have an altar call. And if there, there might be Bible churches that have altar calls and they might be great Bible churches. I don't know. But what I'm saying is I've lived through this. I've seen it. I've gone through it myself. So I know what happens when you try to attach an experience to an altar call to the gospel. Guilt is a powerful force to get people to acknowledge their faith in Christ by raising their hand or by walking an aisle. I mean, there are pastors that are masterful. Everything is working, the lights, the music, and when it's time for the gospel, uh, they start playing the music, and all the environment is perfect. And I'm not saying that there's anything inherently wrong in that, but what I'm about to tell you is wrong. They're trying to motivate the people by guilt. Now, there is a bit of guilt with regards to the gospel because you have to realize before you can be saved that you're guilty. You have to realize that apart from accepting Jesus Christ as your Savior, Savior, you're going to spend eternity in the lake of fire and recognize that you can't be accepted by God on your own terms. You're not good enough. There, there's an amount of guilt in that, but that's not what I'm talking about. Here's what I'm, what I'm saying. In Romans chapter 10, verse 11, this is the King James Version, says, For the Scripture saith, Whoever, Whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. They always use the King James. Because look at the New American Standard, the difference. Same verse. For the Scripture says, Whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. There's a big difference between not being uh, ashamed and not being disappointed. What they're saying is, we've gone through this. In fact, this is in our gospel series we've already gone through. You can go through the notes and find it. Romans chapter 10, verse 9 and 10, that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart, uh, if you, wait, if you uh, confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe it in your heart, then you're going to be saved. And they say you have to confess it and all this. And then they say, now, this is how it's used in the altar call. They'll say, if you really believed, then you're not going to be ashamed to walk that aisle or raise your hand. You see the guilt I'm talking about that goes to play in here? And it's not even talking about being ashamed. Look, here's the last word, few words in the English. It's just one word in the Greek. The last few words in the sentence, both these translations, is one word in the Greek and it's kateskuno. That's K-A-T-I-S-C-H-U-N-O. And it's a verb, and it's a future passive indicative. And it means to dishonor, disgrace, disappoint, put to shame. It never means to be ashamed. And notice, it's in the passive voice. But what they're subscribing to is something in the active voice that you have to walk that aisle. If you don't, then you would be ashamed to let others know that you accepted Jesus Christ. 
And this verse says, whoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. So if you're ashamed and you don't walk that aisle because you're ashamed, then you didn't really believe. That's what they're asserting. They won't come right out and say it, but let me tell you, people who are out in those audiences that hear that and the Holy Spirit might be dealing with them, maybe they did accept the gospel. Are they saved already? Absolutely. They're already saved. Walking an aisle didn't have anything to do with it. And yet, they're put upon, they're made to think that they probably really are not saved if they feel guilty because they would be embarrassed to go down in front of all these people and stand there or whatever else that goes on. And I'm saying that is really wrong. And that's a misuse of the Scriptures. The King James Version is used in order to manipulate the people into thinking that if they don't raise their hand and walk an aisle because they are embarrassed, then they really didn't believe in Christ. This is a disgraceful ploy that undermines the grace and simplicity of the gospel so that there can be a head count on how many people give their life to Christ each week. Now, I don't know, I put give their life to Christ. I mean, that's the way they would word it. I've been around pastors before. Oh, how's your church doing? It's doing great. We had 23 give their life to Christ last week. Well, rah, rah, rah. What about, who, what about people who accept the gospel outside of church? Must they join a church so they can prove their salvation is real because they are not embarrassed to walk an aisle? I don't know of any scriptures that instruct churches to keep a tally on how many people are saved in their church services. If a local church has a pastor who is studying and teaching doctrine, including giving the gospel, some unbelievers will eventually turn up and some will be saved and attend regularly because they yearn for the milk of the Word. I believe that's the way the formula is for the local church in the Bible. By the way, Berean type, you know what I'm talking about, Bereans. Y'all know what a Berean? Y'all are all Berean believers, I'm pretty sure. Well, I'll find out. You don't have to raise your hand. Do you know where that is? Do you know what book that talks about the Bereans? Do you know what chapter? Do you know what verse? Well, you still need to brush up on your Bereanness. So, by the way, Berean-type believers cannot be manipulated by guilt. If they're not sure if they are guilty of something, they look it up in the Scriptures or sift it to the bottom to find the biblical answer if they're guilty of something or not. If they are guilty, if they're guilty of something, they rebound, acknowledge their sin to God. If they are not guilty, they continue to press on as before. You should never... No one should ever be able to manipulate you by guilt. The reason I'm talking about this is because when someone is given the gospel in a lot of churches and they have an altar call and they're trying to make people feel guilty in order to walk an aisle, and, and what makes it even worse is, this is these are the baby 
the babiest of babies. They just believed in Christ, possibly. They don't know the difference that, uh, about not feeling uh, guilty about doing something that is making you jump through a hoop that doesn't have anything to do with the gospel. One reason water baptism is so appealing to so many people is because it is a tangible experience that they can relate to their salvation experience. That's one reason people like it. Many feel that they are saved after they have been baptized, that they are, I've got that R in the wrong place, or that they really, I, have, I put it back the other way. I had it before. Okay. Many feel that they really are saved after they have been baptized, that they've done their part. This occurs even though their pastor explained that baptism is not necessary for salvation. In their mind, eternal security is based on the experience and the gospel rather than the gospel alone. When they think back to when they were saved, they can't really, it's kind of fuzzy in their mind about when it did it really take place, when did they believe in Christ. But a person can remember a date and the experience of going down into water and getting dumped, can't they? I've done it on several occasions. And I can tell you, when I hit that water, I wasn't thinking about anything but how cold that water was and all those people watching. And I remembered it. But you can't remember exactly something that went on in your soul. And people crave this. They want that. They want to get their oar in the water and do their part, even though they may even tell you, and I know this doesn't have anything to do with salvation. But you know what? When you ask a lot of people, I've done this, I don't know how many times, I've asked people, are you saved? And you know how they, you know how they answer me? I was baptized on so-and-so, so-and-so. Now they're coming right out. What you know? I've had Baptists tell me that. And they all know better. Desiring an emotional experience rather than the Word of God is a huge problem and it is a distraction and a deterrent to growing up spiritually. You got that? We're not about experiences. A lot of churches are trying to compete with the world and giving people their Disneyland experience each Sunday. Six. Problem. Desire to emotionally experience it. Second Corinthians chapter six, verse twelve. Second Corinthians eleven. I was referring to Paul and other Bible teachers traveling with him. Spoken to. This is referring to teaching. He says, Corinthians, our hearts open wide. As they continue to be. If you're at a church and that isn't growing, you know the church. Because the congregation cannot spiritually speaking. And that's what this is talking about. It's talking to you 
We're continuing to grow this. Not restrained from reading spiritual charity by us. Don't stack spiritual us. By our in your own. The Greek word akna in. You want to try in that? Try. Hearts that do not develop body. Certain feeling. Hearts that they did form butterflies in your what? Some people, there's nothing wrong with hosting them, not emotionally handled. The problem is when one uses their emotions to make decisions about how to that's anger. If someone is not there, it's just emotion, it's lust, a crazy thing. Make a gosh. The emotional issue is always here. This is the awesome following my example and what is done to others who are so advanced as maturity. You can tell who they are. Follow according to that pattern. Verse 18. For many, and look, put this in your Bibles there so you'll know. He's talking about believers here. Not unbelievers. For many believers walk, of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross. Believers. Believers who live their life by their their emotions and not by doctrine are called what? Enemies of the cross. Verse 19, whose end is destruction. See what I got up there? S-U-D? Sud. You don't want sud. That's the sin unto death. If they continue living by their emotions, that's what's in store for them. <clears throat> Whose God is their appetite, and the Greek word here for appetite is kolia. K-O-I-L-I-A. And it means bowel, stomach, or womb, meaning emotions. And whose glory, and this is talking about human glory apart from God, who, whose glory is in or to their shame. See, they're only interested in emotions, satiating their, emotia, their emotions, and they're interested in their own glory. And that is to their own shame, who set their minds on earthly things. That means they were distracted by the details of life. This last part, I want you to underline, they were, they were uh, to their shame. They set their minds on earthly things. Because what happened is they got distracted. Maybe at one point they were taking in the Word, they were going to Bible class, they were spiritually moving forward, but then, bam, something happened, they got distracted. And what happens when a person gets distracted? They're no longer thinking divine viewpoint, they're thinking human viewpoint, and they're living by their emotions. And they're going to die the sin of the death. They have made a God out of their emotions. Pretty strong stuff, huh? Paul, who was saddened that he was, was so saddened that he was literally brought to tears because of the believers that he had brought to the Lord and then 
were led astray by the Judaizers after he left. I, I've seen this happen. It's, it saddens me. It saddens you. Don't you know, believers, that at one time were gung-ho, they were moving forward, they had zest in their life, they were alive, their light was shining, they just glowed. But what happened? They set their minds on earthly things. That means they got distracted. And when they get started and get... When they get distracted, do you see setting your mind on earthly things, which means getting distracted, do you see that that's in the same verse with making a God of their emotions? You connect those two things. It means when you get distracted, the God of the universe and His Word is no longer your God. Oh, you're still a believer. But your God now is your emotions. You live by your emotions. And your emotions are totally unstable. This is what he warned the Rome. Uh, he, he essentially Rome, uh, warned the Romans the same thing about being deceived by such people. See, being distracted. In Rome, they were distracted by Judaizers. Paul went and he set up churches, he gave them the gospel. He was their spiritual father, so to speak. And as soon as he left, the Judaizers come in and say, oh, well, yeah, you know, well, yeah, we, Christ, yeah, we, 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 we subscribe to Christ, but you also have to be circumcised. You still have to obey the, the Mosaic law to be saved. Oh, of course, that. And they got distracted. It was just, turn to Romans 16. This is... Romans sixteen seventeen. Now I urge you, who? Brethren. He's still talking to believers. I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learn and turn away from them. That dear ones, is the doctrine of separation. Based on what? What is it talking about? Those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learn, turn away from them. Is doctrine important? If you have a friend and all of a sudden they go take a dive off into the land of nonsense... Uh, they, they turn their back on doctrine, and you're going to say, oh, well, what really matters is I love you just like you are. It doesn't make any difference that you turned your back on God. It doesn't matter that you're in reversionism. Just all that matters is love. Huh. That's not what this says. It says, turn away from them, separate from them. Verse 18. For such men are slaves not of our Lord Christ, but of their own what? appetites. The word there, colea means their emotions. And by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. And that can happen to anybody in this room. 
just let down your guard, and it's a sure thing. Don't have much time left, but we're getting to the best part. Part I like most anyway. Trying to live the spiritual life of the church age by the human energy of emotionalism always ends up in frustration. Emotional stimulation doesn't last very long. It quickly fades. Then what? Believers execute the plan of God in their life by thinking and applying what they have learned from the Bible, not by impulsive actions based on emotions. And they don't last long. They weren't designed to last long. And yet, what people want to feel spiritual, they've got to get more and more of their spiritual fix. After a while, normal emotional stimulation doesn't work. You go to church and it's the same. At one time it was emotional stimulation. I mean, boy, you were ready to rock. Then you go, it's the same old stuff. So, after a while it doesn't work. It takes more to get one emotionally aroused. Eventually it takes extreme measures to stimulate the emotions and every sort of insane, ridiculous, or absurd methods are taken to get one emotionally high. The following are a few of the extremes that people will go, that they'll go to to get emotionally high spiritually, that's in quotation marks, which they call worship. Are you ready? This is the one I wanted to get to. Don't have much time left. I did not make this up. At one time, I had a little clip, and I showed it here, of Kenneth Hagin, and that bunch was doing everything on this list, or pretty much. Here it is. This is what they'll do in order to get their emotional high once the normal emotional stimulation is no longer cuts it. Crowing like a rooster, barking like a dog, extreme uncontrolled laughter. Don't you know that'd get on your nerves? Uncontrolled crying, being stuck to the floor, not being able to move. Going into a trance, being un- unable to move or speak. Shouting. Screaming. Chanting. Speaking gibberish, which they call tongues. Handling snakes. Jumping. Dancing. Whirling around in circles. This is done by people that you might meet on the street and say, well, these are just normal people. You would think, this is the Mr. and Miss America, Miss Common, Mr. and Mrs. Jones, Mr. and Mrs. Smith. I mean, you know, they're all over on the block. Until you would see them in this. When I showed... How many of you are here and remember what I'm talking about? Two? It was it was pretty murky. I, I had it uh, somehow. I showed it up here, but it was before I had PowerPoint, so I don't know how I did it. But anyway, you know what? I, what it really was to me and to most people, it was scary. I mean, when you hear grown people barking like a dog, crowing like a rooster, I mean, it was completely incoherent, out of control. And this was called worship. 
That's the end game when you make emotions your God. I, mean, I mentioned Kenneth Hagin, and he's one of many that get involved in this. Most of you have, have TVs. Every TV, I have, uh, I don't know what the channel is now. I, I get, my nut channel is 22, but I don't know what it is on your TV. It used to be channel uh, 8, uh, 14, yeah, 14. Well, I get, I got on, it's on 14 and 22. And I call it the nut channel. Sometimes they have someone on there that's sane, but I mean, a lot of the times you go to regular church services and they're they're getting with it. And when you see people standing up and they're uh, you know they're going like this and they're uh, they're hyped. That's only good for so long. And even when they are hyped, how long does it last? By the time they get out of the parking lot, it's starting to fade. By the time they get home. It might just be a memory by then. It will not carry you. But because they're not being taught the doctrine, they don't know any better. They think this is what what spirituality is. And the other people, you have unbelievers standing over there and they're looking at this. They see it on TV. Their friends at work are telling them, man, we had a great time. We were turning cartwheels and we were crowing and we were rocking. One lady was stuck to the floor. We had to stay late before we finally could pry her off the floor. And they think this is great. And other people are thinking, what planet did you come from? I think I'll end there. There's still more on emotions. I wish that I could find, I looked for that file, I couldn't find it. There, was, there would be one lady that was, the whole time she screamed. She was just screaming the whole time. Right next to her was a lady that was laughing. <laughs> just constant. Another close to her was stuck to the floor. I mean, they were pulling. They couldn't even... And then, and then there was a roaring kind of deal. I forgot to put in that. That was one of them roaring like a lion. But it didn't sound like a lion. It sounded like a demon to me. It was real low. It just went on and on. Well, they were all slain in spirit. This is what they think spirituality is. They're not slain. They live, to live, they live to do that another day. But that's what they call it, being slain in the Spirit. See, they don't have... They don't sit still enough to listen to the Word being taught. Uh, that's boring. What you've got to do is get your emotions up. But I'm here to tell you, there is nothing more satisfying in my soul than the Word of God. It makes sense. And I love it. I can't, I'd rather talk about the Word of God than anything else. Anything else. And we don't have to have all the razzmatazz and all the uh, smells and bells and whistles and drums and uh, snakes. <laughs> yeah. Well, that was the woman that just kept laughing and never, never stopped. Yeah, we live in desperately wicked times. I mean, 
the leader of our country is saying he's all for same-sex marriage. You have churches all over the country that are doing this and calling it worship. Well, we're doing what we're supposed to be doing. We are sharpening our spiritual skills. We're learning how to execute God's plan. We're learning more and more about Him. How depraved we are and how wonderful He is. And that's a motivating force. When you start, when you start trusting the Lord, thinking about doctrine, and seeing Him in His faithfulness, when you pray to Him and see it happen, and you go into circumstances with courage that you could never drum up on your own. You could never get enough emotional stimulation to have the kind of courage when you can calmly walk into a storm, a, a swirling vortex of danger, just as cool as a cucumber because you know that God is with you and you know His Word. And you're not going to be put upon, made to be, feel guilty. You're not going to be afraid. That's something these people know nothing about. The only thing they know is, let's get our emotions stimulated. Let's pray. Father, we pray for these people who have been in deception for a long time. They don't know You. They don't know Your Word. They have bought the lies of Satan and have been deceived. And we pray that You will guide them and lead them to Your Word, to, to Your truth. They're everywhere. And we pray for them. We pray that the Holy Spirit will strive with them and convict them. If they have any positive volition, we pray that you will send them to believers who are prepared to give them the gospel and give it to them strongly and accurately. And to churches that are teaching your word so that they can grow in grace and be part of the Metacoy, the winner believers, those that are going to be awarded and decorated. We know that you will hear our prayer and that you will do this. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.